and welcome to episode number 10 of Popular Volcanics, a podcast about volcanoes and eruptions and magma and all things related. Uh, this is the, I believe now, fifth episode of our series uh, during the uh, Great Hiatus, where we are talking about the basics of volcanology. This week, we're going to be talking about something that a lot of people like to talk about and think about and say some things that are uh, inaccurate about. And that's the role that volcanoes play in the Earth's climate, the impact they might have, that big eruptions can have more hazards than just the local hazards because they can actually influence uh, climate on a global scale for months or years or possibly even longer. So that's what's going to be the topic of today. Uh, as always, uh, I'm Dr. Eric Clemetti from Denison University and Discover Magazine. And with me, as always, is my co-host Janine. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Janine Krippner with the Smithsonian Global Volcanism Program here in Washington, D.C. How are you doing today, Janine? I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited to be talking about this. I've been doing extra reading, which is always fun, and I'm happy to be here. How are you? I am doing okay. I too uh, am excited to talk about volcanoes and climate just because it is one of these topics that tends to garner a lot of attention from the public and in the media whenever there's uh, a big eruption or where the whether there's a new study of an eruption in the past of how volcanoes can influence climate and how then climate can influence human history because there's a lot of connections there and it's it's fun it kind of gets at all of my interests in geology and history so uh, volcanoes and climate um are near and dear to me yeah it's, it's definitely a popular question i see when there's longer eruption um events like Argon or Kibawea, this is inevitably a news cycle that goes around with how could this impact the climate and the answer is almost always it's not. Yeah, I mean, that that's the thing with volcanoes and climate, as we're going to find out, is there is not a direct connection between every large eruption creating some sort of climate change, climate perturbation, because there's a lot of factors that go into whether you're going to see any impact on the climate. So it isn't as easy as just make a big explosion and you're going to cause some sort of volcanic winter to come from it. Wouldn't it be great if science and volcanoes were that simple? If this happens, this will happen. <laughs> that is not usually the case. So as usual, we have some slides and pictures and graphs that you might be interested in, you, the listener here of the podcast. Uh, if you want to find them, you can find them on the episode page for this podcast at popularvolcanics.weebly.com. Um, and you can download the slides for the discussion we're going to be having so you can follow along at home. And that way you can you can see some of these graphs we're talking about. Because unlike sometimes where we have just lots of pretty pictures, the discussion of volcanoes and climate has a little more graphical representations of data, which is not a bad thing. It's just uh, sometimes it, it helps to be able to see the graph rather than hear us try to provide you a word picture of the data itself. So uh, you can head over there and find the slides. But uh, what we're going to start off talking about before we even jump into climate is just the preponderance of people on our planet and volcanoes. So we can, you know, for jumping straight into the second slide of our collection of slides, there's a map of the planet with volcanoes and population marked 
by latitude. And what we find out pretty easily is that, you know, a lot of people live kind of in the equatorial and uh, between 40 and 40, 40 north and 40 south. That's where a lot of people live. And most of the people actually live between 10 and 40 degrees north, not surprisingly, based on the distribution of continents uh, and landmass on our planet right now. And we have a lot of volcanoes where people are finding themselves living. So we have this problem of local hazards being generated by volcanoes, where people living near the volcanoes can be impacted by volcanic activity. So on slide three, we have a plot that's from the Volcanoes of the World uh, compilation that has population and uh, volcanism. And you can see which areas of the world have the highest amount of population closest to the most active volcanoes. And that's places like South America and Indonesia and Japan and Central America. And those are where we expect the most sort of local hazards to be located. But as we know, local hazards aren't the only thing that we have to worry about with volcanoes. There's an awful lot of hazards produced by volcanic eruptions that aren't just going to affect the people living within, let's say, 50 to 100 kilometers of the volcano itself. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. So when you think about the role that volcanoes have in global climate, what are the sorts of things that you think of, Janine? I think of short, punctuated events. Um, and I'm always thinking, you know, it's, it's actually relatively rare. So we have 40-odd volcanic eruptions ongoing around the world right now. But in, you know, human lifetime, in the last few hundred years, there haven't been that many that have had the right conditions to actually impact the climate. Volcanoes are a normal part of this beautiful planet that we live on, erupting all the time. They're part of the normal cycles. But every now and again, there is a volcano in the right place at the right time, the right size, the right eruption that does actually impact climate. And that can be pretty scary stuff. We're going to get into this in a little more detail, but what, what do you think of when you think of the sort of right combination of criteria to have the biggest potential impact on climate? So there's this misconception that it's volcanic ash circling around the globe that causes darkness, but it's not actually the ash. The ash settles out fairly quickly. It's when you get enough of the right gases, so sulfur gases especially, high enough into the atmosphere, so when you have a larger eruption that can punch through up into the stratosphere, and when there's enough of those gases that they can stay in this more stable part of the atmosphere, travel the globe, um, convert to aerosols, and then reflect sunlight. And that's also dependent on the season that they erupt, um, where they are, so whether they're closer to the poles or the equator, and how long the eruption is going, how high it is, how much gas, and all that kind of stuff. So there are a lot of different factors that are in play and that balance, some of them balance each other out, and it's complicated. It is so complicated. (laughs) Yep, and and some, you know, most people tend to think of volcanic impact on climate producing cooler temperatures. There's evidence that some eruptions actually caused warmer temperatures in different locations based on the the style of the eruption um, and how high up some of these things got up into the atmosphere. Uh, So the changing locations and eruption style and composition of the stuff that's coming out of the ground and season all kind of 
get entangled to determine just exactly how significant of an impact a volcano might have when it has a big eruption. So you need to start. One of the best ways that we can look at this is just think about big eruptions in the past and look for evidence of climate. Um, We'll talk about this later on in the podcast too. We can also look for dips in global temperature in the climate record and see if we can find volcanoes that had big eruptions in the right time period. That's a little bit of a tricky game there too, but there's definitely a lot of different ways that um, we can start to put together what are the, the ideal conditions for a volcanic eruption to impact climate. On slide five, this kind of gets at what Janine was talking about. Um, this is just a number of eruptions versus the VEI, the Volcanic Explosivity Index. And it shows a couple things. One is that there aren't a lot of big eruptions. This one shows that I think this I think this is the entire Holocene catalog, if I remember correctly, uh, from the Volcanoes of the World book. And there have not been very many very large eruptions, uh, VI 6 and 7, only 50 out of 10,000 eruptions really classify as that that large. The thing I'll say about this graph too is you see that VEI 0 and 1, there aren't as many compared to VEI 2, but a lot of those eruptions are not preserved in the rock record. So if we're looking back through time to figure out what happened at volcanoes, a lot of these smaller events are just not preserved. So once we start getting into VEI 2s, we get more deposits preserved through the record so we can know about more of them. But these smaller eruptions are more abundant. Yep. This is a common theme in geology is that we have to worry about preferential uh, preservation where different events will record themselves in the geologic record a lot better than other events. And small events especially are hard to find in the geologic record. So we might actually think they're less common than they actually are. So you always have to be wary when you're seeing different plots of volcanic activity because there's lots of ways to bias those plots, either through preferential preservation or the fact that now we do know a lot more about what volcanic activity is going on, uh, where a lot of the smaller eruptions, even like VEI-2 eruptions, a couple hundred years ago, we would not have even known had happened. So volcanic activity isn't speeding up. It isn't slowing down. It's just we get a better picture these days, but we still miss different types of eruptions because of the fact that there's this bias in uh, how they're preserved and, and how we can observe them. Yeah, that's um, even today. So part of my job is actually tracking volcanic activity. So I'll be giving in a certain volcano in a certain amount of time. And my job is to go through every single bit of available data and figure out what happened. And with some volcanoes, they're in areas where there's very little cloud cover. So I can see every tiny thing because there's there's often daily satellite images now. And if it's in a really populated area, I look through social media and I find people have taken photos of every little thing. But if you have more remote volcanoes that are really cloudy, we can still miss a lot of activity. So it's it's interesting that we, we see almost everything that goes on now but we're still missing some things. The joys of putting together a record of global activity is it's hard to see everything happening all the time everywhere. And we, we try. <laughs> it sounds like a lofty goal. <laughs> 
Um, we definitely try. So, so if we start thinking about the relationship on slide six, there's a graph that has uh, a bunch of data. It looks like a bunch of squiggly lines. Uh, one of them is a temperature anomaly, which is just, you know, an at, we have an average temperature, uh, and then we compare the what the climate record, it might be ice core records, it might be actual logs of temperature, it might be um, other ways that we can examine past temperature. And we compare an average temperature to what we have recorded for different years, and we can calculate what's a, known as a temperature anomaly. So is it warmer than usual? Is it cooler than usual? And the temperature anomaly for uh, the last few hundred years, we can think of, look for times when there are big divots, when things got a lot cooler. And a lot of the time, we can correlate those divots with large eruptions from different volcanoes. And we can correlate those divots with the amount of sulfur that was emitted during those eruptions. We can see sulfur in the ice core record. So you go up to Greenland or Antarctica, you get a big core of ice and you can measure how much sulfur was being deposited in the with the snow that was falling to create the ice. You can see how maybe a large volcanic eruption was influencing the global climate because if you have a big eruption and a lot of sulfur and a a temperature anomaly, negative temperature anomaly, that's a pretty good correlation. So we have eruptions that cause pretty clear divots in the temperature anomaly records, like the eruption of Huayna Patina that we talked about a few weeks ago in uh, Peru. We got some eruptions, things like uh, Laki and Tambora and uh, Krakatau, they all have a signal in the climate record that suggests that we are having the influence of volcanic eruptions on global climate that might last a year or two, but they're definitely cooler periods that correlate with big eruptions that put a lot of sulfur in the atmosphere. It goes to show that these are, it's, it's actually amazing how much we can look back through time and understand what's happened with with different disciplines in science. So you mentioned ice cores. We have things like tree rings. We have volcanic ash layers in the soil. We have um, stories that have been passed down through different cultures. And with all of this, we can get a pretty good idea of these larger events that have happened. It's, it's amazing. It blows my mind. I love the science. Yep, it is. Again, it really definitely gets at my interest in both geology and history because there's plenty of folk history and um, other sorts of historical records that tell us about volcanic eruptions, big volcanic eruptions, even if the people at the time didn't realize they're telling us about big volcanic eruptions. So it's fascinating to try to figure out, parse out that evidence from, from the record. One of the questions then would be like, when you have a volcanic eruption, why is it that climate is is being impacted? And Janine kind of got into this already a little bit, but if you look at slide seven, it's kind of a, a complicated figure that gives us a model of what's going on when you have a big volcanic eruption, explosive volcanic eruption, or I guess it could even be an effusive one that's releasing a lot of sulfur, is that you have a plume of material that's made of ash that, as Janine mentioned, falls out relatively quickly. But then you have these aerosols, these uh, material in the atmosphere, things like maybe water or CO2, 
Uh, those are those are probably going to be in gas forms, but then there's particles like hydrogen sulfide and sulfur dioxide that then bond with water to make um, more or less sulfuric acid droplets, and they can get up into the higher atmosphere and they will uh, prevent energy from the sun from making it to the surface of the planet because they end up absorbing some of that heat and reflecting some of it and not allowing it to uh, make it to the surface of the earth. So the surface of the earth gets colder, even though the atmosphere, the stratosphere might actually end up getting warmer. The surface of the planet gets cooler because we lose that energy solar flux that's making it to the surface of the, of the planet. And that has a lifetime those aerosols can be up there in the stratosphere for, you know, at least a year, a few years before they break down and the the effect gets reduced. It's a complex system. You're not just making everything everywhere cooler. The upper atmosphere actually gets hotter, but the lower atmosphere gets cooler. And you can also do things like impact how once you have that change in temperature, that's going to impact winds, it's going to impact cloud formation, it's going to have a lot of different effects that are going to be regional and global. They might last months, they might last years, but it's these aerosols, these uh, molecules in the atmosphere that are causing the volcanic impact on climate rather than just the ashy material that the volcano is producing. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of, you know, the shape of the molecules and how long they can stay in the atmosphere. So even when they're up in the stratosphere, they're eventually going to fall back down to Earth, but they fall very, very slowly. So they can stay there for a while, whereas other things would have already fallen out. And the stratosphere is a lot more, a lot more stable than the troposphere. We have a lot more of um, dynamic system going on. So down here, things are mixed up and rained out and a lot of things happen to make them go away. So if we have these low eruption plumes, like we saw at Kilauea in 2018, that's not going to stay in the atmosphere as much as these really high. And when we mention plume, like you can't even really see this. We'll talk about a bit of an exception of that soon. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a good point is that when we're looking at things that are emitting a lot of sulfur, but the sulfur doesn't get very high, that sulfur might persist in the atmosphere on a scale of maybe a few weeks, but it's not going to have the same impact on the climate because it doesn't last as long and it is closer to the surface so it isn't absorbing the sunlight in the same way it might that's those are the eruptions that might actually end up having a warming effect if the sulfur is all in the atmosphere close to the surface rather than up in the stratosphere so we're talking about elevations above sea level that are where airplanes fly so we want eruptions that get that high up into the atmosphere, uh, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 feet, so that you're injecting stuff that can make it into the global circulation patterns. We can start thinking about how long different volcanic features, volcanic products might impact climate. So on slide eight, there's a number of different ways that we can think about the impact of volcanic eruptions on both climate, which is the long-term record of conditions on Earth, and weather, which is short-term. It's like, is it sunny today? That's the weather. Uh, is it sunny on average all the time during the summer? 
is climate. And there's a whole bunch of things that can happen when a, there's a large explosive volcanic eruption. Um, they have We can put them in very fancy terms, like uh, we can say that it can immediately have the impact of the reduction of the diurnal cycle. What does that mean? It means that it gets dark because of all the ash that gets up into the atmosphere. This might be something that happens right when the eruption happens and will last for maybe a few days before the ash settles out. It's going to be closest, most prominent close to the volcano. It can definitely be impacted. I imagine you have seen, Janine, photos and video of what it looked like around different large explosive eruptions right after they happened. Oh, yes. It looks really, really scary. There's one from Mount St. Helens on May 18th, 1980. Um, I'm blanking on the name right now, but there was a guy who was caught under the ash and it was like, it was in the morning. It was around, the eruption started at 8.32 a.m. And it's gone completely dark. You can see a little bit of light along the horizon but there's ash fall, um, it's, it's noisy, you can hear the eruption, and you can't see anything. So this, this can be pretty scary, but it can also be in a very narrow band. You know, if we can look at ash plumes as they disperse away from the volcano um, from space using satellites, and it's a pretty sharp boundary. And so it can travel for a long way, but it's still a relatively small area that's being impacted when you think of a global climate impact. Yeah, I mean, if you've ever seen videos like In the Path of a Killer Volcano, which is uh, about the Pinatubo eruption in 1991, or some of the um, volcanic hazard videos put together by IAVSE and UNESCO, there's some... Uh, pretty remarkable footage of midday during a big eruption. And it's like darker than any night that you have imagined because light can't penetrate that darkness because of the ash in the atmosphere. So it's, it is one of these things you read the historical records, you watch some of these videos and you're like, Oh, this happened in the middle of the night, but no, it's actually 11 in the morning, but ash is that good at blocking pretty much every form of solar radiation it can from uh, getting to you. Um, And it could last uh, hours to days when it happens. Go look up the Dave Crockett's uh, Mount St. Helens experience. And there are also some bold films that talk about what their experience under ash fall is too. There's some really neat videos out there that show just how how dark it is when it can go from the middle of the day or from you know, full sunlight to nothing. As Janine said, this is a, an impact that is fairly localized or, or in the region around the volcano. Um, so we're not ex- one would not expect that a big volcanic eruption is going to cause like the entire northern hemisphere to go dark. Um, but close to the volcano, you know, maybe tens to hundred kilometers from the volcano, we might expect some blocking of sunlight during the sort of the peak parts of the eruption. The sort of longer term effects are things that are caused by all of these aerosols making it up into the atmosphere. Things like maybe the potential uh, changes in precipitation because of the fact that when you block that shortwave radiation from making it to the surface of the planet, you don't evaporate as much water. So you don't evaporate as much surface water, you don't get as many clouds, and you don't have as much precipitation. You might get cooling uh, because of the fact that those that aeros- those aerosols are, are, again, absorbing and reflecting that radiation. 
um, and warming of the upper atmosphere, like I mentioned, where we have these impacts that are potentially beginning within months of the eruption. It's not immediate, usually, but they can last months to years after the eruption has ended. So this cooling, this global cooling can potentially be the the big climate impact of explosive eruptions where you're going to see a prolonged change in conditions where we get summers that are cold um, or winters that are uh, cooler. Actually, it ends up that it's not a really easy relationship that Sometimes the winters actually end up being warmer for various reasons in terms of how the atmosphere is be, is absorbing different bands of energy from the sun. But the summers are cooler at the same time. So you are impacting things like crop growth because the summers are cooler and the precipitation has changed. So after the Tambora eruption, we had the the now infamous year without a summer because it was a much cooler northern hemisphere summer from all those aerosols that Tambora put up. And we had snow falling in New England in July from the overall cooling caused by all of the aerosols that got pumped up into the atmosphere. Yeah. So the, you know, the takeaway message from all of this is that it's complicated. There isn't just one, you know, cause and effect. It's all of these net cycles that are already occurring on the planet, interacting with um, these gases, depending on where the gases are, how high they get, how much of them there is. So it's not one size fits all. There's not like you get this eruption and it's this big and this is the impact. Those impacts can be very different depending on the, the, the volcano itself, so the magma type, but also the season, the location. So many things are at play. So we can't be looking at a volcanic eruption that's happening and saying this will impact the climate just because it's big. That's not how it works. And another question I see a lot is could global uh, could this cooling from an eruption reset climate change? Well, no, we're not removing all of the carbon dioxide that we have pumped into the atmosphere. This is going to be a temporary thing. It, just think of it as a a brief respite that then the pattern will pick back up once we have cleared the aerosols from the eruption out of the atmosphere. Now, this is where we can go down a very uh, deep rabbit hole that I think we'll avoid of, can we you know, produce artificial volcanic eruptions so that we can impact climate? But as as I just pointed out, we want to be careful with that because although we might cool the planet, we also might totally mess up uh, precipitation, uh, distributions, you might mess up the monsoons. So you this idea that we can geoengineer our way out of global climate change right now is is a a false hope because it's just too complicated of a system to just say, all right, volcanoes can cause cooling. Why don't we just pump the atmosphere full of sulfur dioxide that I think is would lead to general badness rather than the uh, solution we're people were hoping for. General badness is a very good way of putting that. Yep, yep. So geoengineering, interesting idea, probably not too practical. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to, to touch on here is the sort of location aspect of volcanoes that have the biggest impact on climate. And w- what would you say is 
What's that relationship, you think? Um, so it, it, there are a few things in play here again. So it depends on how high the stratosphere, or the how thick the troposphere is. So it's generally, um, correct me if I'm saying it's completely wrong because I might, it's, it's thinner. The, strat- the stratosphere is lower near the equator, right? That sounds right, yes. And there's also um, an impact with the amount of moisture in the air. So with more tropical regions, we have more moisture in the air, and that can add to the overall energy of the eruption plume as well. Um if we have um, we have these you know air circulations, we have a circulation around the equator. We have a different kind of system. It's all of course all related up by the poles. So if you have a large eruption up by the poles, it might kind of get trapped up there. But if you have things happening in the equator, then you have a much larger area that can spread over. And depending on what kind what time of year this is, there could be more mixing up or down. So. It's complicated. This was everything. That might be my thing I say over and over again today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, generally, around the equator can potentially have a larger impact. A brief note from future Eric. In this discussion where Janine and I talk about the eruptions of the 20th century, we say that Katmai had no climate impact. And later in the podcast, we realize that in fact it did. So take what we say with a small grain of salt. Yeah, I mean, probably the best example I can think of for that are the two largest eruptions of the 20th century. Do you remember which those two are? Yes, yeah, so Pinatubo 91 and um, Katmai. Oh, God, what's the other name for Katmai? Novarupta. I'm blanking. Novarupta Katmai. Um, so that was a huge eruption. Novarupta Katmai was the largest, but that was up in Alaska. And then Pinatubo was VEI-6, right? I think so. Um, and that was down in the Philippines, so more of a tropical area. And the, the Pinatubo eruption had an impact here the Katmai did not. Yep. So there's definitely a much stronger signal uh, caused by the Pinatubo eruption that was in this sort of tropical, subtropical latitudes uh, versus Katmai way up in Alaska, uh, which didn't seem to have as much, even though it was a larger eruption. So right there, we can see an example of the fact that there seems to be a, a pretty good preponderance of evidence that these sort of equatorial volcanoes are potentially have a stronger influence on climate when they have a big eruption than something way up by the poles. Now, that leaves certain places, sort of the, the Aleutians and Kamchatka, those are really, you know, maybe Iceland to some degree. Uh, those are the places that are volcanically active in high latitudes. Uh, Antarctica is a little trickier because we don't know a lot about all the volcanoes there. We don't seem to think that there's a, there isn't a huge amount of volcanism in Antarctica, but there's definitely some. But it's really the those equatorial volcanic areas like um, a lot of South America and Indonesia and the Philippines and the South Pacific and all of these regions, uh, some of the African volcanoes, uh, Central America, places that the aerosols can be distributed more efficiently and across potentially both hemispheres. If we move on, thinking about uh, the effects of volcanic eruptions, we can think about what some of these different aerosols can do. So sulfur dioxide, if you're looking at slide nine, uh, so the image, the main image on that is an image of sulfur dioxide released during the uh, it's from satellite data of sulfur dioxide from the eruption that happened uh, near uh, Bartabunga 
in 2014. Does that sound right? I'm now suddenly pausing and feeling doubt about when that happened. But I think it was 2014. It released an immense amount of sulfur into the atmosphere at low levels, which spread out across the northern hemisphere. And one of the things that you that is noted during these big sulfur releasing eruptions like in Iceland is the changes in how the atmosphere looks during sunrise and sunset. Do you want to describe a volcanic sunrise or sunset, how that looks? Yeah, so basically we get these really brilliant reds. So when you're looking at a, sun, uh, a sunset naturally, you have these pink and red colors. It's all to do with the wavelength of light. So um, all of the, wave, the wavelengths of light we get from the sun, it crosses a huge spectrum. Um, and these blue, light, um, blue lights are, are a shorter wavelength and red light is a longer wavelength. And so because of the way that our atmosphere scatters and um, light goes through our atmosphere, the sky is blue. But if we have a thicker atmosphere or larger particles in the atmosphere, this can change it to more of a red hue. So with um, sunset, we naturally have the sun is down low. It's going through more atmosphere, so it's thicker um, from the sun's perspective. But you also have a huge amount of particulate matter or aerosols in the atmosphere, which is enhancing that beautiful red color. Um, And so much so that you can even see, um, I've heard of stories of amazing orange rays as the sun is going down. So apparently it can be pretty spectacular, these red sunsets, bright red sunsets from these eruptions. Yep. And this is some of the ways that we can use sort of unlikely sources to tell us something about potential effects of large volcanic eruptions. So we saw a lot of sunset paintings in England right after or after the eruption of, let's say, Krakatau. Uh, in 1883, that had these vivid orange and red colors to them. Painters would have uh, painted the sunset in a realistic fashion based on the artistic movement of the time. And the, those colors capture the fact that the the sulfur aerosols in the atmosphere were changing the sunset, spread so much that sunsets in, in Great Britain were being dramatically changed because of all those aerosols that had spread out in the atmosphere. So looking at past at things like works of art and historical records and meteorological uh, records can give us clues of just how fast and how far some of these aerosols have, have moved. You can see this from space. <laughs> so uh, with the Pinatuba 91 eruption, there were astronauts going up in 1990 and 1991. And I had a chance to sit down and chat with Jay Apt, an astronaut that was up. And going up before the Pinatubo eruption and then going up after, he was saying that there was a huge difference in how how clean the atmosphere looked, how much earth you could see through the atmosphere. It was really murky looking for a while after the Pinatubo 91 eruption. So you could actually see from space the dip difference in the atmosphere with the amount of aerosols that were up in the higher atmosphere. Yep. If we look at slide 10, there's a graph. It's probably less exciting than at what the astronauts were seeing. But there's a graph of observations that people made of what we call optical depth. So sort of the murkiness of the atmosphere. And it's from the Tambor eruption in 1815, where the optical depth changed dramatically 
right after the eruption where things that were no longer there, the ability to see through the atmosphere became a lot worse uh, and peaked in September of 1815 when the eruption was in April of 1815 and then got better as time went on where at some points there were times where the ability to see through the atmosphere was was significantly different. And when we think about how different it was, on slide 11, we kind of get into this idea of uh, optical depth, where aerosols uh, during big eruptions, uh, we might think that the Tambora eruption had a significant effect on optical depth, where maybe three quarters of the sunlight um, that was being transmitted into the atmosphere actually made it through. So we're at 75%. It's like a dimmer switch. But then we had other evidence from and other models that say that during even larger eruptions, so let's say the Toba eruption, that the ranges of values of how much sunlight was making it through the atmosphere because of the aerosols were ranges from the average sunlight made it would make it seem like it was a cloudy day every day or to the point where the average day kind of made it seem like it was just a full moon that was giving you light so there's some some idea of how much aerosols can make the atmosphere murky and prevent that sunlight from making it to the surface so it's it's pretty dramatic how much uh, you can cut down the amount of sunlight reaching the surface from this these aerosols murking up. Is murking a word? That is now. I don't remember. I like it. It is now. Um, <laughs> murking up the atmosphere. And, you know, on slide 12, we get into the effect that has on temperature, where the after the 1815 eruption of Tambora, the stratosphere actually warmed by 1816 by um, almost 15 degrees. So you're warming up the stratosphere quite a lot. But then the ability of that those aerosols in the stratosphere absorbing that energy from the sun, not allowing it to reach the surface, translated to uh, a one degree average temperature drop for the surface. So it's a very... Which is huge. Yeah, that's a profound difference, um, which is why we had the year without a summer during uh, 1816, 17. And the effects of that cooling, although the stratosphere got back to normal, cool, it cooled down the stratosphere by maybe about 1818, the surface temperatures really didn't return to normal mm-hmm. until up almost eight to 10 years after the uh, eruption itself. So there are different ways the systems can catch up um, at different rates after a big eruption like this. It's really cool how we can look at past eruptions and figure out how much gas was released. So um, I'm going to summarize this. It's, of course, very complicated. But um, you can look at the gas that is trapped in crystals and glass that form crystals that form before the volcano erupts. So down and down, way down below the surface, you get pockets of melt or magma or gas trapped, and those remain trapped. And then you can measure the amount of gas populations within the glass, so the, the quenched and rapidly cooled magma after it's erupted. 
and you can calculate volumes. So how much, how much magma was there. And if you look at how much gas was trapped in those tiny inclusions before it erupted and then calculate how much gas there was still in the magma after it had cooled, you can look at how much gas was released at different stages during the eruption, which is really, really freaking cool. And one reason why this is really important is that different magmas hold different amounts of gas. So, for example, the Mount St. Helens 1980 eruption and the El Chichon eruption in 82 were of pretty similar size and pretty similar you know, age, only two years apart, but there was seven times more sulfur dioxide in the El Chichon eruption than there was the Mount St. Helens eruption. The El Chichon magma had much more available sulfur gases to release during that eruption. So it's, it's, it's amazing just looking at these past eruptions and figuring out how much gas there was actually released and how different this is at different volcanoes. Yep, there's definitely, that's again, one of those factors that goes into determining the sort of impact that that volcano is going to have on the on climate is that it's you have to think about as you said location season composition of the magma it's there's a lot of things that go into it so just because you see a big explosion it doesn't mean we're going to get big climate impact because of it so slide 13 is kind of a map of recent eruptions and significant past eruptions that had discernible impacts on climate. So the past eruptions might include Tambora in 1815 and Rinjani in Indonesia in 1258, Kuwait in Vanuatu in the 1450s, uh, Kilatoa in Ecuador, Huayna Patina in Peru. Uh, again, they're all sort of these tropical, subtropical volcanoes. One of the exceptions is Laki in Iceland, definitely not tropical or subtropical, but also one of the largest eruptions, sulfur-releasing eruptions we've had in human history. So this sulfur story um, is part of it, where those, that eruption of El Chichon in Mexico might not have been as big as some of these other large explosions, but it was just an immensely sulfur-rich event that happened. And that is uh, what kind of its location helped and the sulfur amount of sulfur helped. So that impact uh, can be quite dramatic. Just point out here because it's on this diagram um, and, and Eric and I like to point this out that the ring of fire isn't actually a thing. The volcanoes in the ring of fire are not connected. So while people like to put um, a zone around it and it's not really a ring, like it's kind of a squished something with Indonesia being included. Um, but keep in mind that there's a lot of misinformation that comes out when, you know, there's more than one volcano in the news. There's always more going on behind the background. People are like, the Ring of Fire is more active. That's never true. Yep. I am not a fan of the Ring of Fire. Nope. I love the song. Love the song. Don't love, don't love the implications of the, <laughs> of the area. <laughs> yes. It is, it is a, as I like to put it when people ask me about it, it is a, a, evocative phrase that people have latched on to. It is not any way like a connected system. It's just a nice way to say that there's an awful lot of volcanoes around the Pacific, and that's just a coincidence of plate tectonics. What else? Let's see. If we go down to slide 15, um, we can think about how, where we talked about this a little bit, where we find the record of past climate 
and where the volcanoes fit in. So one of them is ice cores. I talked about this uh, uh, briefly before is that ice core records in Greenland and in Antarctica are really vital for looking at past climate. We can take those um, ice cores, look at concentrations and compositions of gases trapped in the ice because ice glacial ice like we have in Antarctica and in Greenland is formed by taking snow that falls each year and preserving it from year to year and converting that snow into ice over years, decades, and centuries. And the gases that were around when that snow fell get trapped in the snow. And we can sample those gases and get a sense of of climate um, during the time that that snow was falling in a specific location. And when we combine the record of a bunch of ice cores from different places in different hemispheres and see how they correlate, we can get a sense of how global climate might be changing over hundreds or thousands of years. Some of the longest ice cores can give us thousands, if not tens of thousands of years of, of climate record by looking at what's trapped in these in these uh, layers of ice that are created annually. You know, if we're looking at slide 15, which is a compilation of a bunch of different ice cores, we can see the signal of some of these eruptions quite clearly where uh, there are and again, one of the things to point out too is that different, depending on the eruption, the northern hemisphere might feel the changes caused by the eruption more than the th- southern hemisphere. So we have a lot of occasions where one, the Greenland ice core might record something that the Antarctic ice core isn't recording as well. Um, so we look at things like um, maybe the sulfur is being recorded everywhere, but the climate isn't, or look at maybe ice cores from places like. Um, uh, equatorial glaciers rather than just polar glaciers. But there's a lot of different ways that we can look at this cl- these different records and when they correlate and show things like the drop in global temperatures after 1452 or the drop in global temperatures after uh, 1815, we can pretty conclusively point to big eruptions that happened in those vicinities as the culprit that is changing the climate signal in these ice cores. Yeah, it's pretty neat how we can look at all of these different systems around the world. And by we, I mean climate scientists, not me and Eric. Um, But there are so many different systems that can record temperature in some way, Um, whether that's the different species of plants and animals that were thriving in, in very specific ranges of temperatures and how that changes and then we look at these um, icicles and tree rings and, and lake sediments and peat bogs and all of this fits together to give a model of what the climate was in the past. So all of these different scientific groups um, who work very independently, when you put all of that data together, we have this amazing picture of what the past climate was like. And when we look at volcanic eruption history with that, then we can get a picture of, of what some of the influences have been over a very short amount of time. Tree rings are another way. If we're looking at slide 16, you know, we look at tree rings that record the growth of trees. Um, and, and during times when it's cooler, you'd expect to find uh, changes in the density of tree rings. And uh, we can find, again, the signal of large volcanic eruptions that have then caused climate 
to uh, get cooler in these tree ring records. Now, there's, a, of course, a lag because the trees aren't instantly going to respond, but we can correlate them with uh, eruptions that happened within a few years of where these volcanoes have changed, so or where these volcanoes have erupted. And this is where it gets complicated, too, is that we can look at the tree ring record, the sulfur dioxide, the ice core records, and see evidence for climate perturbations where it gets cooler. Sometimes there are events that seem like they should be volcanic cooling, but we don't any record of a big volcanic eruption happening. It just goes to show that sometimes it, we have been able to track down the sources of these big eruptions that are suggested in the climate record. It's surprising to me how easily we can hide the evidence of big eruptions. Not us, yes. the Earth. The yes. Earth is hiding the evidence, not the yes. scientists. <laughs> We're looking for it. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. It's amazing how easily we can miss the evidence of big volcanic eruptions unless we are looking for them in the record because of the fact that uh, we don't know everything about every volcano and that the more we can go out there and study different volcanoes, the more evidence we might be able to find for these big eruptions that show up in the climate record, but we just haven't been able to trace down the source of them yet. That's a little more accurate than saying that we're somehow nefariously hiding these eruptions which we're not. We're like Earth's detectives trying to figure out every single tiny thing we possibly can. Like, And when we find something, especially if it's unusual, it is so exciting. Even if it's horrifically horrible and scary, there's also that, that discovery that comes with finding these things. And as we get different techniques, we can do a better job of it. There's the whole field of um, uh, crypto-tephras. It sounds a little weird. It kind of sounds like we're looking for Bigfoot, but it's not the same sort of crypto as cryptozoology. <laughs> Crypto-tephras are tephras, the, the, the catch-all for volcanic debris produced in an explosive eruption. One can look at the evidence of, you look at, let's say, you, you mentioned bogs, right? Peat bogs. And they uh, can record annual uh, deposition of that material in a bog. And people can go in there and find individual grains of ash from volcanic eruptions that happened thousands or tens of thousands of kilometers away and look at the composition of that ash and match it to a volcano so that we can see some of these big explosive eruptions that um, we have missed because uh, they have maybe we haven't explored that volcano in all of its detail, but we can find evidence in the seafloor sediments maybe of very far away big eruptions that happened and get a date for those eruptions based on the peat bogs or the date of the sediment or things like that. And looking at, you know, finding a half a dozen fragments of ash in a deep sea sediment core. But the fact that we have that ability is so much more than we had even like maybe 15 years ago. So the there's a lot of different ways that we can begin to find evidence and match up some of these big eruptions. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. The rise of cryptotephra or tephrochronology is the study of them. There are, you know, this is looking through a peat bog core. So these can be a couple of inches in diameter. And we're talking about individual grains of tiny microscopic volcanic glass and, and, um, 
finding them is 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 worse than a needle in a haystack. Um, it's it's a lot of amazingly hard, difficult, and precise work that goes into finding and analyzing these grains. And there are some really cool stories out about there. There was there were grains found in in the UK from an eruption that they couldn't place. They couldn't tie it to Iceland and it was eventually linked back to Alaska. So it went all the way over Canada and then was preserved in these peat bogs in the UK and it turned out to be this enormous eruption. So it was by kind of chance that this, these, these tiny grains of ash were linked back to this huge eruption around the other side of the planet. So it's, it's a really neat field and it's getting better and more accurate and there's so much cool information coming out of it. Yes, the White River Ash. Uh, sorry, I have no... That's the one. I'm a big fan of the White River Ash. Um, I have, in fact, analyzed a zircon or two out of it. The White River Ash is, is interesting, too, in the sense that we had this evidence of actually two large explosive eruptions in the last few thousand years. And we aren't, in fact, even quite sure where they came from in the Wrangell Range in Alaska. There are a few candidate volcanoes, but we have been able to say this is the vent that these eruptions came from, which to me is just, uh, a again, a fascinating volcanologic geologic puzzle to say that we had massive eruptions that ash can be found in the British Isles. We can't definitively say exactly where it came from in that part of Alaska. So the White River, White River ash, if you are interested in such things, you can look up some information. It's, it's fascinating. There's actually some evidence of stories from native people living in the area at the time that might be connected to that eruption and that they that it might have influenced how native people in the area migrated across North America. So there's a lot of weird stories with the White River ash. It potentially even separated populations of native animals uh, and caused them to um, have some evolutionary divergence over the last few thousand years because of it. So... That's my advertisement for the White River Ash. Wow. Yes, I'm a, I'm a big fan of it. I didn't know um, that. That's fascinating. As much as anyone can be big fans of large explosive eruptions, it's, <laughs> I'm a fan of it. We look at maybe um, slide 17, which is a table. Again, it kind of just shows it's a table of big, big explosive eruptions. Starting at about 181 AD, which is, of course, the Taupo eruption. And it has some of the, the bigger eruptions over the last... Uh, few thousand years, including, uh, you know, the eruptions in the large caldera in North Korea. On this table, the 1258 eruption is listed as unknown. I think people these days think that that unknown eruption was linked to Rinjani in Indonesia. And then we have things we've talked about, like uh, Huayna Patina and Tambora and Krakatau and Katmai. I'd say that we apparently lied a maybe are have to go back and correct because according to this table, Katmai did have a northern hemisphere temperature anomaly of minus 0.4 degrees huh. Kelvin, which uh, is uh, something that I was not aware of. I was not aware of that either. This is great. We get to learn as, we, as we're going. Yes. So it did not have as large of an effect as Pinatubo in overall, but it was pretty close because they released about the same amount of sulfur, that being about uh, 10 teragrams of sulfur. That's a very large number. But other eruptions, like uh, the Santa Maria eruption, uh, produced in 1902, 
released more sulfur than, let's say, Katmai or Pinatubo and produced no anomaly that we know of. Let's see, what else is I, we're going to talk about? We can talk a little bit about uh, the fact that they, there's some speculation about how volcanoes might impact the occurrence of El Nino events. There's some evidence that some of these large eruptions that cooled the lower atmosphere and heated the upper atmosphere may help trigger these El Nino events. This is, again, now we're kind of in the arm-waving portion of discussing climate, where we have to think about correlation and causation. Um, But there's some evidence that volcanoes can impact, have a long-term impact on oceans. Yeah, and it goes both ways. So there's some evidence that the um, El Nino could actually amplify or dampen the climate depending on what the cycle is at the time. So that's another bit of complicated mess that we can throw into will the volcano influence climate question. One thing we can be sure of that I want to throw in there on slide 19 is that volcanoes are not the cause of our current climate change. We talked about this earlier. Uh, Volcanoes are not adding carbon dioxide into the atmosphere at such rates that they are the reason that CO2 uh, concentrations have gone up uh, many, many, you know, in the last thousand years, they have gone up from 280 parts per million to 400 and something parts per million right now. Um, It's definitely not volcanoes that are doing it. We can kind of make two arguments. One, we don't have more volcanic eruptions going on right now, so that's not going to do it. They're not releasing more carbon dioxide in the Uh, even if the number of eruptions hasn't changed. Uh, And we can even look at the composition of the carbon that's being emitted. And it's not the composition that volcanoes would be emitting. It's the composition of carbon that would be produced by burning fossil fuels, coal, natural gas, oil. So it's pretty clear that it's not the volcanoes that are releasing this carbon dioxide. Volcanoes are happily doing what they've done for millions and billions of years, but they're not the culprit in any form for the carbon dioxide concentrations in today's climate. So don't believe it when you read that. No, like there's this, the Deep Carbon Observatory, there's this huge project going on. Scientists are going out and actually measuring the amount of carbon dioxide coming out of volcanoes. There is some, but I want to read out word for word what their report finding is. So humanity's annual carbon emissions through the burning of fossil fuels in forests, etc., are 40 to 100 times greater than all volcanic emissions. And, you know, we could also talk about, this is another question I get fairly frequently, is can climate change influence volcanic eruptions? The answer is mostly no. So there's been some research coming out of areas that have volcanoes like Iceland with huge ice sheets on top of them, enormous ice sheets on top of them. And when you have the climate warming, this can cause a lot of melting, which can release some of that pressure that is pushing down on a volcanic system. And that might increase volcanic activity. But if you look around the planet right now and see how many volcanoes have enormous ice sheets on them, it's not that many. So there's no evidence that um, anything like precipitation can trigger volcanic eruptions or that any other way of changing the climate can impact these deep magmatic systems. I mean, you're looking at magmas that are thousand, you know, over a thousand degrees hot 
and a small change in climate um, temperature at the surface. And these systems are so well insulated by the rock below. So those are some common misconceptions that I hear being shared around a lot. Volcanoes are not influencing climate in the way that people think, and climate is not influencing volcanoes most of the time. Don't ever believe the tweets and memes you see that says, oh, look, this volcano's <laughs> erupting. That's all the emissions of all the cars on the planet this year. It's not. It's not even close. Oh, it it's just me. a simple way to it fool people. Me. So don't believe it. No, it's, you know, and I've seen a few instances of these recently where people tweet an eruption plume and they're not even that big of an eruption. Yeah, they're impressive and they're beautiful, but they're not even that big with grand comments of this is the more than the total emissions of X amount of cars over a year or something. And they are completely pulling useless information out of nowhere. And these go viral. It's really, really annoying. And then you see um, scientists refuting that and they refuse to take it down because they're getting attention or whatever their reasoning is. And it's just, it spreads like wildfire. And now the information, uh, the internet is full of misinformation like this. So it's it's really annoying. <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> yep. It, that's a uh, yes. I have, I have nothing more to say to that other than yes, it is highly annoying and don't believe such hype about volcanic eruptions. They are big. They are impressive. Uh, some of the most impressive events that we can have on the planet, but they are not um, negating or causing the changes in our global climate today, uh, at least not at this very moment. What we can kind of get across here, hopefully, for those of you who have listened to this point, is uh, that volcanic eruptions, provided they, they meet a bunch of uh, criteria, uh, can have a profound impact on climate. And the other thing we haven't really talked about that we probably won't get into too much is that when you get really big eruptions, things like flood basalts, which are massive outpourings of basaltic lava that can last for millions of years, those can have such a dramatic impact on climate that they are potentially the causes of mass extinctions. Now, they're different. They're not a single eruption. They're many, many, many eruptions of basalt lava that can last for long, long periods of time that will have a cumulative impact on the global climate. So they're comparing something like the effect of the Deccan traps in India to an eruption of, let's say, a Pinotubo is like apples to oranges, uh, because they're really not the same thing. They are they're both volcanic eruptions, but they have very different um, characteristics and very different durations. But for most part, big explosive volcanic eruptions, provided they are in the right place in the right season and the right composition and the right height of the plume, can have imp global impacts for years after after these eruptions. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add, Janine? Uh, just, you know, the usual warning. Be very, very careful what you read around there. there there's more misinformation and honestly straight up wise out on the internet that there is good information go check out the deep carbon observatory um simon khan on twitter is a really great person to follow when it comes to volcanic gases and climate stuff um find some good information and, and i know it's hard it's frustrating it's it's very frustrating for us as well you can see the confusion that's caused out there 
So good luck. Stay diligent. I hope you're all going okay out there. Uh, this is week six or seven for a lot of us. So I hope you're okay. Thank you for tuning in. If you are interested in volcanoes and climate, I would also recommend checking out uh, Eruptions That Shook the World by Clive Oppenheimer, who is a renowned volcano and climate expert. The book especially is a wealth of knowledge about understanding how climate and volcanoes are related. Uh, but yes, as Janine said, I hope everyone is is doing well. Uh, we're making it through as best as we can. And uh, next week, uh, we'll join you all again, I think, with another podcast. And then that will actually be the end of my semester here at Denison. So we'll have to decide uh, what we're going to be doing moving forward. We probably have some things to talk about related to Mount St. Helens as we hit the 40th anniversary uh, coming up soon and some other things like that. So we'll see where we go. As always, if you have suggestions, uh, send us a message on Twitter to at Pop Volcanics. Uh, you can also check out the website, popularvolcanics.weebly.com and get information, other information and links to the slides uh, for this podcast and track us down any way you'd like to uh, let us know what you'd like to hear in the podcast. Okay.